0: Um, We are going to be in Genesis chapter four, Genesis chapter four, verses one through five a, and five a, b, c, that's just a fancy way of saying the first part of the, of that verse. So we're going to just take a little portion of verse five, because I don't want this to go in another direction. um, And you'll see why. So let me read this now, Genesis four, verses one through five. Now the man, he's talking about Adam, had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks. But Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the lord of the fruit of the ground abel contrasting this on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions and the lord had regard for abel and his offering but for cain and his offering he had no regard and of course as we know the story it goes on where because of this regard that God had for Abel and not for Cain Cain rose up and killed his brother and we'll we'll touch on that a little bit but the main thing I want to get to is why did God accept this offering and not the offering from Cain why did he accept Abel's offering and the word <clears throat> regard is more than just like he had regard for it like he liked it it's a gaze He gazed on that offering, God did. He really liked it, okay? He had his eyes locked onto it. It's not that he didn't like Cain's offering so much, but he didn't have regard for it. He didn't have that gaze. And so this is the first sibling rivalry in the Bible, by the way. But why did Cain do this? Why did he go after Abel other than maybe he was jealous? We know that it was his offering that Abel gave that caused that jealousy. But did he think maybe out in the field that day when they went and basically attacked his brother and killed him and spilled his blood, was there jealousy? Was he trying? Was he thinking that Abel was sort of kissing up to God by bringing you know something better than him? Cain probably thinks, well, wait a minute, I'm a tiller of the ground. I can only bring so much. It's not fair. But you see, when you go a little bit further into the text, you see that it was Abe who brought the firstlings of his flock. And it says in some translations about Cain that in the course of time that Cain brought an offering that we read there to the Lord for the fruit of the ground. It says some manuscripts say the source of. Okay, so um, did I read that right? Yeah. I did. So the time that Cain brought an offering. So basically what we're doing here, because I just, um, to, to make this easier, it's a contrast between the two. So we can infer in scripture that because Cain's offering was not pleasing to the Lord, I'm sorry, because Abel's was, Cain was not. And why? Because he didn't bring that first fruit. He gave him the second best. And so we see a... A history, throughout the history of the scriptures, we see God very much concerned with this uh, concept of first fruit. Here it's the word is used firstling, which really in the Hebrew means birthright or firstborn. And we also know that is a very big theme in the scriptures as well. So God, sometimes he'll connect this firstborn with genealogies, and sometimes he connects it with so-and-so is the firstborn of whoever, and this person you know, was, uh, had a so-and-so, and they named him this. And we see firstborn throughout the Bible. It's used over 133 times. But it's also used very much as it relates to sacrifice. And so this firstborn to God was very unique. But why was it? unique in terms of the sacrifice well first of all it was unique in that it was the very best the very best somebody had so if somebody was in the time of christ was to bring a sacrifice into the temple what was the first thing that happened there the priest would inspect that sacrifice he would inspect the outside and he would even inspect the inside and make sure that that was a, a a perfect sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. We see this throughout. Um, we see God saying, you know, in in Exodus and in Leviticus, we see this concept of this unblemished sacrifice used over seventy three times. So not only does God want the firstborn, the first fruit he also wants that to be the very best, perfect and unblemished. And so this, in terms of sacrifice, what's this bring to our mind mostly is, especially when it comes to sacrificing the firstborn and also sacrificing an unblemished, perfect sacrifice that would please God. Now again, we're talking about the Old Testament here. All these sacrifices were pointing the whole entire sacrificial system was a type of what Christ was going to do in one swift punch at the cross. And so we have this Passover lamb. Again, it says here in Exodus 12, 5 to 6, your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. <clears throat> What's more unique about this is that when we look at Christ and the work that he did on the cross, oftentimes people say, well, God, couldn't he have, why did God, why does Jesus have to be God? Why does Jesus have to be God? Is it because he did a lot of miracles? Is it because he rose from the dead and all those things? No. God could have sent some sort of lower being, some lower spirit. He could have created some lower being and said, hey, go die for the sins of the world. But that is not consistent with God's character. It's not consistent with God's love, and it's not consistent with God's justice. And so why does God have everybody, starting with Cain and Abel, why is he so obsessed with that firstborn and that unblemished sacrifice is because ultimately one day God was going to give his firstborn the very best himself to without blemish not only without physical blemish but most importantly without spiritual blemish so when you see Christ on the cross Hanging there between heaven and earth, being that interest, that mediator for us, we have to think of God's love, not only because He sent His Son, but He sent His Son the very best that God has. The very best, not, I don't even want to say thing because Jesus is a person, but the very best thing that God could have done for us. Wasn't to eliminate sin and wipe out evil and just start over and do all that. No, the best thing was for us to see that bloody cross and to see Christ hanging there. But more importantly, to see why he was there. Like we always look at the at the cross and we could say we could think about it. I could sit here right now and talk about it and get emotional about what Christ had to go through physically the crown of thorns and the beating and the, the flogging and all that stuff. Most, and, and just having been ripped away and betrayed by everyone, everybody. They, they smited Jesus and all the sheep, they all went. The flock scattered. And you look at that and you say, wow, that's terrible. And, and it is. It's absolutely horrific. But that should just be When we look at that bloody horrific cross, it should just be a mirror that's showing you our horrific sin that required that. You see, it's our sin that required the brutal death of God. Think about that. When we sit and think of how good we are. Well, I'm a pretty good person because I'm not as bad as that person over there. And always that is somebody that's a little bit worse than us. I do it too, you know. And we do it like almost artificial intelligence here. It's like we calculate and be like, okay, that's all right. I'm better than that. Yep, I'm better than that. I'm not good as that. I'm not that it is. And that's our whole mentality. And sometimes that even dictates our relationship with God. Oh, it does subconsciously. Because if you have a works-based relationship with God, because that's what that is, then what ends up happening is, is when something bad happens in your life, you go, what did I do wrong? And you you may have not done anything wrong. You're living in a fallen world to cause that specific thing to happen. Maybe you did. Maybe you did some dumb, dumb things and there were consequences for it. You see, Jesus was that perfect sacrifice to pay for the, per- the perfect sin problem. There's this sin wiped us out dead. There wasn't like a, this wasn't a rescue mission per se where we're going in to pull people out and bring them here. No, this was a rescue mission that we're going in as one of them to die. And now what made his death so effective? Well, it was the blood. We just sang about it. The blood of Christ, the life is in the blood. Christ's blood is of infinite value. It never stops. The value can't be counted. What does that tell you about your sin to God and your separation from God? It's just as infinite, it's just as separating, it's just as horrific. So this is why Jesus requires us as human beings, not as Christians. Forget us Christians for a second. As human beings, this is why God requires perfection. Because he's perfect. You see, the, 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 the whole entire concept of the blood atonement sacrifice that Jesus made at the cross is part of God's ultimate wisdom, but it's also part of his being in his character. Jesus is on the cross on Good Friday because God is a God of love, and he, is a, he could do absolutely nothing out of selfish ambition. It's not a part of it. That's out of his wheelhouse. So he did this out of pure love for for you and me while we were sinners and enemies and absolute God haters. Can you remember that time in your life when you really hated God? Maybe you didn't know it. Maybe you only came face to face with that concept when he really put the pressure on you. He turned up the heat. This sacrifice, the most valuable ever to be given in any transaction in the history of creation. The death of God himself. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God. And what he did at the cross was he, it says in the Psalms that justice and peace, kiss. Justice and mercy, they meet. And that is really very, um, it's, they're contradictory. It's like, how can mercy and justice at the, you know, happen at the same time? How could, it, how could it happen and work judicially in God's economy? It can't. Unless, the only way, unless God himself comes down to show his love, a triune God becomes a man, He's sent out and he's, he dies. He's able to do that and give. He gave the very best. So how do we respond to the cross? Well, again, every human being, sin dilemma, separate from God. Every single human being. Then what happens is, is God opens your eyes. God does something because we can't on our own turn from a God hater to a God lover. We don't have those connections in our brain. They weren't built in the human body because originally they were, but then they were ripped apart by sin. So how do we respond to this? Well, first of all, love must be reciprocating. That's another aspect of God. The reciprocating love of God. Where is that? Where do we see that? In the Trinity, where we see God, the Father, giving the Son, and and giving the Son a, 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 a mission. Go. Go and do this. And the Son, equal, equal in essence and in value, and but too different, he bows in submission, and he does it. What do you think God wants us to do to become perfect? We can't become perfect on our own. We can only become perfect in one way, and that's through Christ. But then when we come to Christ, what does he expect from us? The same thing. He expects us to go to that cross, and that's the difficulty is going and looking at a bloody, thorny, splintery cross and somebody there saying, come, grab onto it. Embrace it. When the cross is embraced as the sin deliverer, when you come to the point of your sin where you say, there's no other way I can go. I've tried everything. God will reveal himself to you if you seek after him. If you're open, are you open? God, has he worked in you for that? Embrace the cross. Move by faith. Grab that cross. Give your sins at the cross. Know that they're forgiven and don't let go of the cross. And then that cross becomes a source of resurrection life. Because in the resurrection, which we're going to talk about on Sunday... That's what animates our mortal bodies. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead gives life to our mortal bodies. A mortal body that's dead unto unto the world, dead unto the uh, system of the world, dead unto the old, and now anticipating and surrendered to the new. That's the result of the cross. When you embrace it, But the first thing is, is you have to decide. You have to decide where to go. When you see your sin, you either do one of two things. You either run to the cross or run away from the cross. We run away initially. God chases us down. Where are you at tonight? I don't know what would be a better time to make that final settled position in your mind that you are going to respond to the call of God, to the call to believe in Christ. If there is anyone here that doesn't. Many are scared. They perceive it's horror and they they go. Jesus is the sin bearer, people. This is what the most difficult thing that I find as a pastor and, I've, and, and it's so great because I haven't been a, a, a real pastor that long, right? So I've had a lot of ministry experience, but I haven't been a real pastor where I'm sitting down with real live human beings every day and hearing about what's going on and trying to do my best and minister. Um, and that's truly where I get most of the content for any sermon that's up here. And I, I'll, I remember a seminary professor saying that you will preach who you are around, what you preach will, be, will, will come out of who you spend the most time with. And so when you're out and, you're, and you're, you're, bar- well, when you're buried in your office all week doing absolutely nothing but just digging into the scriptures, that's great and that's fun. And you can still preach good sermons. But then when you're out there and you're seeing it and you're hearing about some of these things, this is the, one of the main thing here that I see is people having this frustration this, um, this fear of coming to the cross. Why? It's why Jesus came to take your sin. I hate to say it like this, but he loves it. He wants you to come to him with it because he takes it and he goes, and it's gone. He hates it when you run and try to make it on your own. <clears throat> we love because he first loved us, Like I was saying before, how great would it be to come to Christ on the day that the world recognizes his death? You'll then desire to give your first fruits. You'll want to give your first fruits. You'll run around looking for that firstborn of the sheep to give to the Lord, the firstborn of all your flocks. But if not, and you're doing this not, you're, maybe you're not quite there yet with the Lord and it's a struggle for you because you're in, you, you have a burden over you. Christ wants to take that burden from you and he'll forgive you. Whatever sin that you committed, there's no chart for God where it's like, oh, no, that one's, nah, that, can't cover that one. What's the one sin that he won't cover? That's unbelief. So if you disbelieve and you stand before the Lord on judgment day, there's going to be no hope. No hope other than the justice of God. And you can't handle that. So come to Christ. Give him everything. Come to the only place to have your wrongdoing, sins, and transgressions forgiven. And that's the cross. Father, thank you for the cross, Lord. Father, we, are, we don't realize it now, Lord, because we're so caught up in our everyday so many times. And well, we're, we're so caught up in, uh, in all of our stresses and our anxieties and all of the uh, responsibilities that we have, we, we, we get we sometimes get the cross out of focus. Please, Lord, I pray tonight as we leave here that the cross would be in crystal clear focus. And as we walk out of our two front doors, let the two crosses there be burned onto our eyes as we go out, Lord. And let's see the world as you do through that cross. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.